Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. In her new book, The Fires of Spring, my guest today, Shelley Culbertson, travels to six countries in the Middle East and North Africa to describe for readers how each of these countries are managing the political, economic, and social challenges of the post-Arab Spring era. Through interviews and drawing on her own expertise as a longtime analyst, Culbertson explains why some countries in the region managed to muddle through the Arab Spring, some collapsed under pressure, and how at least one may have emerged stronger. Shelley has had a career in government and is now with the Rand Corporation, where she specializes in education and development in the Middle East, and we discuss her interesting career path and some of the fascinating stories from her book and travels throughout the region. And if you're interested in comparative politics and the Middle East, you'll love this conversation. I certainly learned a lot from her, and the book is a fantastic resource. As always, if you're new to the Global Dispatches, Go visit the website, globaldispatchespodcast.com, to check out our archives, get in touch with me. And if you are a regular listener, as always, please do consider leaving a review on iTunes and telling all your friends, family, colleagues, neighbors uh, about this podcast. And now here is Shelley Culbertson of the Rand Corporation. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. The book idea came from watching the Arab Spring as this this wonderful momentum of hope and optimism and dignity, and then watch it crash and burn um, in ways that that looked like they the Arab Spring really wasn't achieving what it what the people in the Middle East had hoped that it would achieve, and so. Watching this, I also felt a lot of disappointment at, at what had happened. And yet at the same time, I, I really felt strongly that you, you can't have this kind of massive societal upheaval that just fizzles, that doesn't have uh, impact for, the, for, the, for longer development and, and longer good. And I lived in the Middle East for a long time up until that point, and I was just about to move back to the U.S. So it seemed like the perfect time to try to step back and take stock. So what I really wanted to do was do a journey through... Uh, key parts of the Middle East and try to understand what had happened with the Arab Spring. What was this really about? What had it changed? And then what what did what did this mean for the future of the Middle East? So that was really the motivation for the book. So where were you when Hosni Mubarak fell? I was in Qatar when Hosni Mubarak fell, and um, it, it was it's interesting you you asked that because uh, uh, clearly the, the what you saw in the media was a lot of violence and upheaval and yet excitement and pride at what was happening in, in Tahir Square with those seas of people. And, um, but in, in Qatar, there really wasn't a, a revolution or any sort of protests at all. It was, it was very quiet. And so I remember being called by 
family and friends around the time, are you okay? What's going on? Is there a revolution? And then just looking at these tranquil parks and nice architecture, and then realizing that Arab Spring was a very different story in different parts of the Middle East. What was happening in Egypt was very different than what was happening in Qatar or, or Iraq or Tunisia or, or various points. These are, these are very different storylines. And of course, everyone around the world was relying on Qatar's television arm, Al Jazeera, to follow the, the events in the Arab Spring. Exactly. Uh, yes, Qatar didn't really have it didn't have its own protests, but it was a key player because it had Al Jazeera that was uh, it, it would be hard to have the Arab Spring without an organization like Al Jazeera reporting on it on the ground. And and for a long time that was a very trusted voice, but then Al Jazeera uh, lost a lot of trust over time as it became affiliated more with the uh, the views of of Qatari foreign policy. So yeah, so so Qatar Qatar's role really was was Al Jazeera and then um also interference a little bit later on in, in, in some of the some other ways. Um, so when you're in Qatar, you're you're following the events in Tahrir Square. When was the your first moment of setting foot in Egypt after the fall of Mubarak? Well, I had actually spent a year in Egypt as a student. When I was an undergraduate I spent a summer in Cairo studying Arabic at the American University of Cairo. And then uh, about a year and a half later, I returned for a full year of Arabic study. So Egypt was a place that I knew well, and I had really been um, formative for me. It was the, it was the first non-Western country that I had spent any significant time in. I studied there. I had a lot of friends from there. It's, it's a, it's, it's a place that's, central and pivotal to the Middle East as a quarter of the Arab world in, in, in so many ways. And so I didn't go back to Egypt, actually, until writing this book. And it was sort of a homecoming in different ways, because it had been the first time I'd been back since well, a very long time since I, I was an undergraduate. But also, I went there um, on, the, on the on the fourth anniversary of the overthrow of Mubarak. It was literally the, the day of and the, the the day after. And walking around Tahrir Square was a very different scene because uh, what you saw in Tahrir Square around that time was stillness of people, big traffic jams, beggar children running around, um, really squalid buildings, um, and a lot of tanks, tanks, guns, security. Uh, It was not the hopeful place of masses of people uniting and rising up against tyranny. This was uh, now a silent scene of, uh, really a silent scene of counter-revolution of how things had changed. So it was a very different place. So this this idea um, that the Arab Spring should not really be considered in like a monolith. Like right now, currently, we look at the Arab Spring and we see um, just disasters, uh, mostly uh, mostly disasters across the Middle East. But what I found, I guess, really interesting about your book is that you sort of broaden the scope and you introduce um, the experiences of other countries that are somewhat off the radar um, as having had um, experiences with the Arab Spring that are not, say, consistent with um, the the the, the experiences that were sort of commonly considered disasters, right? Like um, Egypt or Syria or Libya or Iraq. And, and one of those is Jordan. But before talking a little bit about Jordan, I just wanted to comment on your, on your earlier observation sure. that, um, I, that my book in, in, in many ways is, it's a little bit different than what you're seeing in 
the news of stories of of a full scale disaster. Clearly, that full scale disaster is is there. I mean, Syria has been fully fifty percent of Syria's population displaced. Libya, Yemen. There's there's some very very horrible things happening, and and I think that tends to get most of the media media attention, uh, while quieter small changes and developments have been covered less. And so even with this context of some very, very bad things happening um, in the Middle East after the Arab Spring, I think it's, it's a lot more complex than that. There's, there's a, a struggle with ideas underway about what these societies want for themselves. There have been places with incremental changes and, and positive direction. And so, and I think that really comes to your question about Jordan, because Jordan's an example of that. Um, I, I put Jordan in the book because it had protests, but it wasn't a case of government overthrow. And for the most part, the protesters really weren't asking for government overthrow. They were asking for incremental changes within the context of their own government. And so there were protests. There was some violence, but nothing anywhere uh, in comparison with some of the other countries. And those protests led to some small but significant changes in, in Jordan's constitution and some steps in political openness. Uh, they might have gone a little bit further, except around this time, Jordanians started looking around at what, what happened in Egypt and in Syria, and they said, we don't want this. This is a mess. We're, we would rather stay with what we have than go in that direction. And so as some of the people I talked to put it, Jordanians really um, collectively um, came to a societal consensus to quote unquote put on the brakes um, to slow things down. And so in a way, I think Jordan is an Arab Spring success story because it did lead to some more openness and these changes, but it also led to moderation and rational decisions about um, how change could happen. I mean, that's not to say that Jordan is um, out of the woods. I think Jordan is very fragile at this point and Jordan absolutely cannot be um, let down. Uh, it's surrounded by very difficult neighborhood neighbors. It's in a very tough neighborhood. It's got um, someplace between 600,000 and, and 1.4 million refugees in it. Um, it's, it's still very precarious. Um, but, but Jordan's an important country, and I think it provides an example of, of how, how in, incremental in, institutional change can happen. Um, and there are other countries, though, that also um, sort of adopted an incrementalist approach to protest movements that seemed to a certain degree to both placate those movements and also open up those countries uh, a little bit to become like marginally perhaps more liberal. Um, I, I suppose Qatar might be another example. Qatar is an interesting example because Qatar didn't really have any protests at the time, um, or, or after. But Qatar had also, in a way, gone through a sort of spring in the past decade or two. So I, I think what the Arab Spring was about was people looking at dysfunctional governments and saying, this is not rep representing us, the government's not accountable, um, we d youth don't have opportunities, and so forth. Um, and Qatar is by no means um, a, a, a democracy, but Qatar did start in investing in um, in the development of its people, trying to invest in education and healthcare and um, and so forth, a while back, and so I th th there was a lot less pressure within Qatar for that. It's also a very wealthy country. Um, 
and, and perhaps it could be argued that their Arab Spring was really kind of bought off because um, around the time of the Arab Springs, Qatar gave government employees and, and military very, very large raises. So there, there were those, those steps. I think, I, I think other countries in the Gulf are similar in which they have been, they have resources, they have been investing in their people, not perfectly, but there is movement there, that, which, which has been different from the stagnation that you see um, in, in some of the other countries. I, I think if I were going to point to one main success story out of the Arab Spring, it's, it's Tunisia. And, it, and Tunisia, because it was, it was government overthrow, but followed by this incrementalism um, and, and moderation. I think you saw it in Jordan um, from, from the very beginning. Because what, what happened in Tunisia was that uh, really a half-century regime had been overthrown. And then when elections happened, um, skipping a lot of details of the middle of the story, um, it, it eventually led to a lot of tensions between an Islamist party and a secularist party. They, too, looked around at some of the events of the region and decided they didn't want to take Tunisia there. So they managed to put aside their differences, sit down at the, negotiation, at the negotiating table, and craft a constitution that somehow blended secular values and Islamist values in a way that could form uh, a sort of new accountable social contract for Tunisia. And uh, similarly to J Jordan, they're, they're not out of the woods. This is, it's a very fragile state. They have, uh, they're certainly facing a lot of challenges, overflow from Libya, et cetera. But um, it's, it's really the one place that, that is trying to create a new model of what, what, a, what a new Arab society could look like. Um, so in, in your book, you sort of caution that we shouldn't conclude too firmly one way or the other, um, whether or not the Arab Spring was a success, a failure, or something in between, uh, until we have the, um, the, the perspective of history. Um, why, why will this be sort of a generational um, discussion, as, as you wrote? I think this is a generational discussion because the, the Arab Spring was about the Middle East deciding collectively what they didn't want. They didn't want decades of dictatorship and autocracy and repression and stagnation. But once they had government overthrows and protests about what they didn't want, there really wasn't consensus about what they did want. Um, once that question was, was, was really posed, um, there were so many differences about what these societies should look like that they, they really became mired. And furthermore, they didn't, the institutions were not in place. So I think there was a, a general impression that you could just overthrow the bad guy at the top and then suddenly everything would be lovely within a country. And that's clearly not the case because it, it's not just the bad guy at the top who's running things. There, there, there's institutions, there are entrenched interests and so forth. And, and that really takes a long time to change. And I think perhaps the best comparison among revolutions in history, if you, if you, if you look around, is, is the, the 1848 revolutions in, in Europe. They were, they were similar. They were, they were uh, a rising up of people against um, autocratic governments within Europe and then were squished by, uh, by a big counter-revolution. At the time, they were viewed as a huge failure. But 30 years later, they had led to significant social changes. That had really laid the groundwork for, for, for changes in, in, in basic rights and civil liberties um, and economic rights and so forth. And so I, I think it was probably too much to expect, um, given where these countries were, that an overthrow would make everything great all of a sudden. It wouldn't. 
that takes time to build. And, and that now needs to happen. All right. So maybe when I'm 60, when, when Chelsea Clinton's president, we'll, uh, we'll be able to decide whether or not this thing, this thing worked out. Exactly. I think, I think we'll, we'll both be retired by that point. Um, so I, I'd love to learn a little bit more about you and how you uh, got so interested in this part of the world. So where are you from? Um, I grew up uh, in a lot of different places. My family moved around a lot. I was, I was born in California, but, but lived in Pennsylvania um, for, for a very long time. And um, I, th- I think I grew up as a nomad with a lot of relatives who were nomads. And so uh, when I went to college, I became very hungry for study abroad experiences and got scholarships and uh, uh, got a scholarship and went to, went to spend a summer, summer in Israel and a summer in Egypt and then a year in Egypt and a summer in France. When, and, what part, when, when was this? When you went to um, Israel, about what year? That Israel is ninety six. Okay, so like, um, you know, after the assassination of of Rabin. Yes. What yes. was were you, were you, what was that experience? I mean, what were you doing in Israel? I was a student, so I I, I studied. Uh, it was a program at Tel Aviv University, and um, so spent some time um, on campus in Tel Aviv, and then also traveling around the country. And then, uh, part of it also was uh, time spent on a kibbutz. It was called Kibbutz Gezer. And it was, uh, basically a kibbutz that had been started by a bunch of Berkeley hippies. And, uh, uh so, so also pretty, pretty American. And that, that, that started really an interest and a fascination in, um, in, in the Middle East. I mean, it's this, it's the center of, three of the world's greatest religions and the passions of people all come together in this one place. And it, it, it drew me in. I was, I was, I was fascinated. And, and then I, I came back and then wanted to go to Egypt after that and then spent some time backpacking and traveling in, in other parts of, of the region. Um, and then that eventually led to a career interest in working in, in, in development. Um, so, but why, why the Middle East of all places you could have set out from, from Pennsylvania? What, what compels you to the Middle East of all places? I think it, it, it was it was general fascination with comparative religions, and when I was a student, um, I was really intrigued by how Christianity, Islam, and Judaism were all coming together in in, in one place. And I I spent a lot of time taking classes on on comparative religions. Oh, I was a comparative religion pre- major. You're, you're preaching oh, you? to the choir. Okay. I love it. It was I I like miss I miss it actually. I kind of do this foreign policy stuff now, but I I miss like biblical exegesis. Um, but they're so, linked, you know. They're they're linked. I mean, the r- r- religious studies of the past is essentially the foreign policy of the past. Um, and uh, yeah. What do you mean by that? That's interesting. I've never, I've never thought of that. Um. Well, for example, if you, if you, if you, if you pick up the Bible, um, there, there, there's ethics and so forth, but a lot of it really is the history of, of movements and of, of people and battles of people and how governance was structured and, and set up. Um, uh, and then similarly today, a lot of, a lot of the politics of the Middle East are defined by, um, um, by people's faiths. And many of the, 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 the most important debates within the Middle East today are about the role of faith within government, or about how people of different um, ethnic and religious identities um, can live together uh, within common borders with a common set of values. So, um, um, not to say that that uh, uh, th- that those are the defining issues in in every region, but but clearly they're an important issue in the Middle East. 
Um, so how long did you spend in that first um, sort of jaunt out to, to the Middle East when you were studying abroad and, and, and backpacking? And I suppose probably learning Arabic. Do you also speak Hebrew? I don't speak Hebrew. Mm-mm. But you do speak uh, Arabic? My Arabic used to be pretty proficient. It's, it's rather rusty right now, um, but it, it used to be pretty solid. Um, yeah, so I spent, let's see, so when I was a student, I spent a summer in, in Israel, and then I spent a summer in, in Egypt, and then I went back and I had a, 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 a fellowship to spend a year in Egypt, and then... Um, it was like a Fulbright or something? It was, a, it's now called a Boren Fellowship. Oh, so yeah, it's of a, course. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and um, um, I, I met some Australians, and Australians seem to have a habit of they they leave Australia, and once they get out, they just travel for you know a year at a time. And I was I was fascinated by that idea because that that just seemed like something that I really wanted to do. Um, and they managed to do it on, on you know ten dollars a day. So um, you know I, I came back, worked a little bit, saved up, and then went went out and backpacked for uh, for some months, um, and then. But it, it was sort of, it was sort of a hunger of of trying to see the world and really understand what was happening in in many of these regions. Were there any particular experiences from that part of your life that that sort of resonate to you to this day? Any any stories of of encounters that you might have had that helped shape your perspective or worldview? Um, I think a couple of things were formative on on a personal level learning how to get around difficult places, um, I think is a, a good lifelong skill for anybody. Uh, but, but on, on a bigger picture, just seeing how different societies are from American society in terms of culture and values, um, levels of prosperity, seeing extreme, extreme poverty. Um, but then also using that lens to view our life in, the U.S. almost as as a, as a mirror, getting a chance to view, um, to see how the rest of the world views the United States um, from an outside lens, and in, in a way, getting a foot kind of on in, in two different worlds, uh, both in, in in the United States and and elsewhere. And it, it's from that perspective that I really wanted to write the book. I wanted to have a foot in um, in in both the Middle East and the United States, and then try to be able to act really as an interpreter between you know what how can those two places understand each other a little bit better? Um, so at what point did you opt to go to, uh, to grad school? I went to graduate school. So I, so I finished my bachelor's degree. Um, and then I, I, uh, studied in Egypt. Then I worked at the U S state department for a couple of years. I worked both on Turkey and then on the Caucasus and central Asia. Were you um, in uh, the foreign service? No, it was, it was linked to my fellowship. So there was, um, um, that, yeah, so get, getting it, it was a it was a two year position that had been linked to the Boren Fellowship. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did that for a couple of years. And so, what sort of issues were you, were you working on? In uh, were, I mean, like, were you in Foggy Bottom, sort of working in the on the Turkey desk, sort of thing? Yeah, yeah, um, on, on the Turkey desk, um, and 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 Turkey was a great country to work on because it's 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 where so many worlds collide. It's 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 Europe, it's the Middle East, it's the Turkic world. It's 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 really the center of, of so much. Um, it's also the center of the former Ottoman empire and, and the, the, the middle East a hundred years ago was really one political entity, almost one country was the Ottoman empire. And so what we're, the current middle East really is, is a, a fractured version of, of a place that had once been ruled from, um, from Istanbul. So that was, um, 
I think a wonderful learning experience. And I have to and imagine then, probably at that point when you were on the Turkey desk, probably the biggest Turkey issue, right, was was ascension into the EU. Was that yes. like in the early 2000s, I imagine? There were probably three big issues. One was, was how Turkey could um, create the reforms that it needed to in order to join the EU. Um, another was Turkey's relations with Iraq. Um, which was very difficult. And then Turkey also fell into a terrible financial crisis around that time. And I remember at, at the time, the, the anecdote that we used was that the, the entire economy of Turkey was, was, was less than the, the, the annual income of General Motors. So, um, uh, so it, it was difficult. And then when Turkey passed out of the financial crisis, you can look at it today. It's one of the biggest economies in the world. It has really grown since. Um, so that was a, it was a, it was a great time and place to be looking at those issues. Now is your view, there's this, um, like sort of ongoing, I suppose, conversation, right. In foreign policy circles about Turkey's ascension to EU at that time. Um, and, and the debates that surrounded it and the conclusion, I think probably like the consensus conclusion, and you can, um, perhaps, uh, dispute the, con- uh, or, uh, dispute the consensus is that the Europe was, was never actually really serious, about um, permitting Turkey to join their their club, and that they imposed all these or demanded all these reforms, and even as Turkey made progress for reforms, they kind of kept moving the goalpost, and to the point where Turkey just got fed up and and said, "Forget it, we don't care about this anymore." I think that's probably a pretty common view, and there's probably um, a a fair amount. To that, that said, it's hard to predict the future. And Tur- I mean, Turkey is part of Europe. It's part of Europe. It's part of the Middle East. It's a country that straddles th- these 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 two worlds. And regardless of whatever happens, the EU process um, is is a excellent process for countries to go through because it requires um, improvements in standards of, of 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 financial management and human rights and press freedoms and and so forth. And so. The pro- whatever the outcome is, the process tends to be um, um, a good process, and even if it doesn't result in eventually in in in, in EU membership, um, having those goalposts, I think, are probably good for any country. Um. So, how long were you uh, working on Turkey at the State Department? Two years. And where did you move to? Um. After that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, after that, then. Then I went to graduate school. So I did um, a master's in public policy at Princeton's Woodrow Wilson School. Uh, did you have like a specific focus at that point? Were you kind of doing area studies, focusing on the Middle East? At that point, I, I didn't want to do regional studies. I wanted to get a set of general skills to work in international relations and international development that could be applied in, in multiple places. So, um, yeah, it was, a, it was a, definitely a generalist degree that combine you know, economics, psychology, public policy, um, politics, et cetera, and uh, really a, a, a wonderful um, experience to, to launch from. And did you have a plan in grad school about the kind of job you wanted to get? I didn't. I knew I wanted to work in international development, but what that looked like, I didn't quite know. Um, I thought probably something with the Middle East, since I had done a lot with it before, um, and then um, after grad school, I, I worked for a couple of years at a, at a consulting firm and then um, went to RAND uh, in Qatar. I've been at RAND for about 10 years um, at this point, and it's just been a, 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 a wonderful fit. And it's, it's a great place for people who have short attention spans and like to work on a lot of different things. 
Um, and so what kind of consulting, uh, what was the consulting gig? It was called LMI Government Consulting, and it, it's a government consulting organization that uh, is both private sector uh, and does a lot of public work. And then there I, I was working on some international trade issues as well as uh, some, some international uh, health issues. What sort of issues? So we had a, a really interesting project funded by the Gates Foundation on how vaccines uh, on the on the supply chain for vaccines. So this so LMI had particular expertise in military logistics. So the question was, could you take military logistic expertise? Because with military logistics and, and health, for example, you have to suddenly set up hospitals and clinics in the middle of nowhere where nothing existed before with supply chains. Could could some of that experience be used to expand uh access to vaccines in developing countries. So we, we looked at those questions and, and came like up with a number chain of chain management, that sort of mm-hmm. thing. Cause the, you know, the, a lot of the, the vaccines need to stay at a certain temperature. Yes. Yeah. So looking, looking broadly at well, what, what happens along the supply chain and can, uh, can vaccines, um, can the supply chain be improved in order to increase access to vaccines? Um, and at what point were you, um, I saw in your bio, were you sort of working in Kurdistan with, uh, the, the regional government? For the past five years, uh, um, a colleague, uh, George Renee and I have been co-lead, co-leading an effort to advise the Kurdistan regional government of Iraq on, uh, improving its education system. So that's really been the last five years. Well, it's been on hold for the last year given um, the, the, the war with ISIS. But that was also, that, that's also been through RAND. And I, and I think it's just been one of the, the, the most interesting and satisfying and meaningful, informative um, work that I've, I've done so far. So what does um, that actually in, entail? Like what does a, a – say you're living in a more stable part of, of Kurdistan or uh, it's before ISIS. What is like a typical education look like for a, a Kurdish child? So, Kurdistan. Well, starting with a little bit about Kurdistan. Kurdistan, until the the recent war uh, with with ISIS, was really a little bubble of stability within Iraq. And they, they some main political parties had put aside their differences and were working together to create a, a regional vision for development. That said, they were starting from a, a pretty difficult place. So, for example. The, the goal that we were helping them with on was trying to get all children in school up through grade nine. And they had mainly achieved all children in school up through grade six. And then it dropped um, precipitously to about half or so um, up until grade nine. Why so is that? Get, well, in part because they didn't have enough school buildings, in part because um, uh there hadn't been the expectation or, or the need for a lot of children to go to school that long. So there were, there were cultural changes. There were some very real logistical changes, issues to address. So you, need, you need to have enough schools. You need to have enough teachers and so forth. And then there were also quality issues as well, that um, they were starting in a place in which the education system had not been um, as, as aligned as it, as it needed to be with the needs of the labor market. And so there were all of these changes that needed to be addressed. So we have been working with them on an effort to, um, to, to try to put some of those plans in place, but looking at access, quality, and, and accountability. And in terms of your earlier question about what, what, what education looked like for um, a typical Kurdish child, um, there, there's actually a, a pretty big variation. From, from school visits, you could visit some 
beautiful brand new schools. And then uh, schools in some more rural areas have trouble with electricity or, uh, or lack of access to water. So there really is quite a big variation. And before the war with ISIS, the region had been investing a lot and making some pretty big changes in how it managed its education system. And um, among the other really horrible things that have happened with, with, with ISIS, it's, many of those initiatives have been placed on hold in, in the Kurdistan region just because, I mean, there's a, there's a financial crisis. Um, people's attention is distracted. Uh, the region feels under threat and, and, and so forth. So um, is that, it's actually... Um, I feel very sad as I as I think of all the wonderful people that I've met and worked with there, uh, and the conditions that they're living under now. Well, it almost seems like a sort of microcosm of of the broader challenges of um, of out of school youth, right? The, the, I've been read a, a couple of series of, of UNICEF reports. Um, you know, they use this term like lost generation of, of Syrian youth that most Syrian kids are are not in school, or most Syrian refugees are not in school right now. Um, and so what are the implications broader generationally? We we're talking earlier about sort of this having a generation sort of consequence of the fact that you have just so many kids who never received any sort of formal schooling. It is, it is absolutely huge. And um, actually at, at RAND for the past year, a lot of my work has, has been on the Syrian refugee crisis and in particular doing education studies. Uh, we, we took our experience um, with, with Kurdistan in a, in a post-conflict area and, and thought, well, what can we do to think about refugee education in, in Jordan, Lebanon, and, and Turkey? So we, um, we have a couple of reports out on that, and the implications are massive. So fully half of Syria's population is displaced. There are about 4.6 million Syrian refugees. Uh, of those 4.6 million, about a third are children, and of those children, about half are not in school. So that's 700,000 Syrian refugee children who are not in school. And when you think about that, it's, it's, it's terrible for all of the individual children. It, it, it's, it's also a regional issue that what will happen to a region when that large of a number of children are not getting the basic education that they need to take care of themselves, um, c- contribute as, as, as citizens, con- contribute to the economy, be able to support themselves and their family. It's, 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 a, it's a human catastrophe, and it's a, it's a larger national security issue, not national security, let's say international security issue, that there is a region in, which has essentially been bombed back to the dark ages. Um, and education is really key to that. I mean, there have been like a number of studies, I think mostly though taking place in sub-Saharan Africa that links um, just like um, a young, uh, mostly male uh, population, like young, undereducated, underemployed men to increase propensity for destabilization and, and violence. Uh, and, and you wonder, um, you know, if, if 20 years from now, if nothing changes, if, if the investments aren't really you know, there for educating refugee children, if, you know, that's going to turn into a, a security challenge, you know, 15 years from now, 20 years from now. You could you could definitely make that argument. Of course, you can't predict the future, but there are some pretty big risks of of what happens when you don't have basic education for uh, both boys and girls to meet their basic economic and social needs going forward into the future. Um, it's it's a it's a it's a huge question, and I and I think um, when 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 you mention boys in particular. Uh, 
a, a troubling statistic is that among the Syrian refugee children, boys have about half the rate of education that the girls do, um, which some people find surprising or, or, or counterintuitive. But what it is is that families are so poor that children are having to work, and families are more likely to send their boys out, their little boys, out to work um, than their girls because they're they're you know, they're very afraid for the girls. So it become it becomes even worse of a of a generational and societal problem when you when you think about low rates of access to education um so uh when did you start working then on on this book i put the, put in the proposal in um in 2014 beginning of 2014 and then really worked on the book from the summer of 2014 until about december so just a couple of months ago. So it, it was about a year and a half. And um, I, I, I stayed working at RAND. I, I worked part-time while writing the books. So that was, uh, I think I had a year without too much sleep. <laughs> uh, it, was a, it was a very intense but exciting year uh, of being able to work on the book while also working on some of these other issues. And you, I mean, you, you, you sort of globetrotted around the Middle East to report this book. And there is, you know, there's, there's like some, some good actual reporting and it's all, obviously all, all analysis. Um, is there any individual, any character that you met uh, reporting out this this book that that stands out that that you'd want to mention that sort of perhaps symbolizes um, some aspect of this the the cultural and, and political changes that have gone on over the last say you know since since the start of the Arab Spring. I think there are so many people and so many stories to tell about that, um, and that's that's a it's tough to narrow it down to one. But I, I would actually like to go back to Tunisia's constitution because I think that Tunisia's constitution and the process that led to it is really the 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 basis for a model for the rest of the Middle East if they can make it succeed. And one of the things that was really exciting were actually two back to back interviews that that I did. Um, people who led part of the constitutional um, process. So one was uh, a, a woman uh, named Meherzia Labidi from uh, Anahda, which is an Islamist political party. And the other uh, was a man named Fadl Musa from a secular political party. And they, they both had leadership roles in drafting of the constitution. And I interviewed them separately and heard about the struggles that were involved in coming to agreement. Um, and how they looked around at the region, realized that as leaders, they had responsibilities to try to avoid what they saw in Libya and Syria and elsewhere. They wanted to prevent that from happening in Tunisia. And so the political parties didn't agree on much. They, they really were very polarized. But they realized that if they didn't sit down and work this out, very bad things could happen. And they did work it out. It sounded like it was a very painful process. And at, at a lot of the center of the disagreements was the role of religion and society. And the way they worked that out was by figuring out, well, there are many things that they disagree with. What do they agree on? They, they agree on a certain set of human values. They agree on, 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 an, on a number of, 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 of civil rights, a number of issues of accountability. And so they, they worked through what they did agree on, and they managed to put aside what they didn't agree on. And they came up with this document that's really a new, it's, it's not only a new social contract for Tunisia, but in a way, a new social contract for the Middle East, because it defines, um, it defines a new way of an Arab region government um, having accountability to its people. And I, I 
came out of those interviews really just with sort of chills down my spine, feeling like I had gone back and interviewed someone from you know, seven, 1789 in the United States drafting the Constitution and, and dealing with such very difficult, um, hard decisions. So I, I think that combination of hearing from two different sides and seeing how they came together was really, really thrilling. Uh, to what extent do you think the personalities of the individuals involved um, helped shape that outcome? Uh, as opposed to, say, larger structural forces uh, that might have um, you know, that that might have contributed to the compromise that you describe, I think it had to be everything. There was a there was a confluence of circumstances that led to this, and personalities definitely played into it because there were there were some times in the drafting of Tunisia's constitution when the parties could have gone different ways. Tunisia could have resulted in civil war because two different parties could have said, we have nothing in common, we can't agree on this, therefore we're just going to remain in governance limbo for a long time. And they made conscious decisions to put aside um, some of those differences in very measured ways that didn't necessarily happen in other countries. So, for example, the Islamist party in Tunisia, Anahda, made a decision to not try to grab too much power. They voluntarily resigned from government. Um, they voluntarily did not put up a prime uh, a candidate for prime minister in elections because they had seen what had happened in Egypt when the Muslim Brotherhood tried to take too much power. There had been a second revolution in Egypt against this additional larger grabbing of power. So there were decisions about being moderate, decisions about participating but not monopolizing. And those kinds of decisions on really both sides of the aisle uh, in Tunisia are what have set it on the path that it's on. I mean, it's, clearly it's, it's had some very bad terrorist attacks in the last year. So it's, it's by no means um, all easy going forward. But I, I really do think that uh, what they did was 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 historic, and, and it was exciting to be able to hear that directly from them. And, and and did you meet in the course of your reporting any of the eventual winners of the Nobel Peace Prize? I did not. I I did interview uh, Lena Ben Mahani, who had been nominated uh, a, a, the year before for the for the Nobel Peace Prize, and Lena was a, a, a Tunisian woman who was a blogger, and. During the Arab Spring protests in Tunisia, there had been a media blackout, and the foreign press wasn't allowed to report. Tunisian press was too afraid to do it. And Lena is a very brave young woman, and she she went to the side of the protest. She said she she put it. You know, she said I viewed the corpses. She she talked to people. She blogged about it, and then people would send her their videos and um, and their experiences and photos. And she was really uh, a voice from inside Tunisia. To the outside, and they banned, they blocked her her blog within Tunisia for a while. But it was able to be accessed from outside, and that voice to the outside um, um, was one of the, was a main source of information during the time. Um, the the uh, the ones who 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 won the Nobel Peace Prize um, the, the following year um, were similarly. Um, um, working across the aisle to try to make different parties who had disagreements come together. So and, I think and, it's a good and, place. And kind of created the, the, the foundation for that constitutional compromise, right? Yes. Yes. Um, great. So, uh, so what, what's next for you? What, what else are you, uh, you looking forward to? What else can we see after this book comes out? That's a big question. And the answer is, I don't, <laughs> I don't really know. Um, I would love to write another book, but I, I, my, my book will come out April 19th. And uh, so uh, I, I want to launch that. And at 
the Rand Corporation, I've been doing uh, work on refugees. We just finished up our third study, which should be out in the next couple of weeks. And I would very much like to continue working on the refugee response. I think this is one of the biggest humanitarian catastrophes of our of our generation. And it's, it's, I mean, it's humanitarian. It, it, it's got security issues. It's got public management issues. And if we don't get the response right, um, this will be something that affects generations of people in the Middle East and Europe and the United States and elsewhere. So that's something that I would um, uh, like to keep working on. And then um, at some point, maybe think about another book, but have to get my first one out first. All right. Well, Shelly, congrats on the books. It's a, it's a great read. Um, really interesting perspective and, and a little different, I, I think, from a traditional kind of academic book about the um, Arab Spring. I, I appreciated it. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. The, the, the intent is that it's, it's, it's analytic, but also telling a story. It's meant to be for a general audience. It's not academic. And I think, as I mentioned earlier, I, I really like the you know that it brings in not just you know the Egypt or or Libya or Syria, but but you're looking at countries like Jordan and, and Turkey as well, and, and how they experience these upheavals. Thank you. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Mark. It's a pleasure talking with you. All right. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Shelley. And yeah, fascinating stuff. All right, we'll see you next time. Bye.